Laura's funeral was scheduled for April 22, 1982. But John Munden decided that he wanted to speak with Trudy and Steve before then. So he traveled to Chillicothe, Ohio, and had breakfast with a family, and then took a very grudging Steve and Trudy Snedeker to a local police station to do an interview. He didn't seem to learn very much for all his effort. They spent most of the meeting pointing fingers at other people. Tony Lambert had 90 guns, they said. Bryce Morris was thick with a guy named Dave Corbin. David at Planip was the best man at his and Laura's wedding. A guy named Dwayne Brinson had used the word sucker. And that was presumably offered because that first call that came into Trudy Snedeker on the day after Laura went missing had included the phrase, we're bound to get you, sucker. The funeral occurred the next day, and there was a significant police presence. After that, investigators hit the ground running, and it's clear that what they were doing at that point was trying to nail down the whereabouts of Ricky Akers during the time that Laura went missing. Police interviewed Patty Bridges. She was the woman who was with Rick Akers during some portion of when he was on the run. Patty gave them the address of where they had stayed in North Carolina. And she said that he had a small chrome gun with a pearl handle that he got while he robbed someone. Well, it had apparently gone off at some point and shot Ricky Akers in the foot. So he threw it in a pond in North Carolina. Patty told police that a guy named Mike Smith had helped them move back to Indiana sometime in the first half of August, so that time frame would put Rick Akers in the area when Laura Morris went missing. Throughout almost all of 1982, police seemed to spend much of their time interviewing people about Ricky Akers and David Alplanip. They spoke with Bryce Morris, Laura's ex-husband, multiple times during that time frame. They also spoke with a friend of Laura's named Debbie McKinley. She had met Laura in early 1981 and had seen her the Tuesday before she went missing. They had gone out for the evening to a couple bars. Debbie mentioned that Laura had discussed with her her interest in running a pinball room, just like she had with Winston. Laura told Debbie that she missed Brandy and the impression that Debbie got was that while Laura still loved Bryce, they would not get back together because of how much they fought. Debbie said that their divorce was due to drugs. She said that Laura told her that a stranger had given her pills, speed, and quaaludes. On the same day of that interview, police turned over to the lab for testing that bag of pills they had found in Laura's purse. Sometime around this time, in the fall of 1982 is when John Munden thinks it happened, he got a strange phone call one night when he got home, where the caller told him to stop investigating that case. And then they hung up. Uh, he told me about he told me about that. He also told me about more than one night that John lived out kind of in the country, and uh, remember him saying more than one night that somebody followed him home. Right. On one occasion, I think, as I recall, he when he parked his car, he got out and started walking towards this vehicle that was just sitting there running at the on the road at the end of his driveway and as soon as he got out started walking toward him they took off did uh, he ever figure out what was going on with all that no no not really hmm. um 
you know, there, there's no way to know for sure that it was even connected to this case. Right. I mean, as far as that, that incident, now the phone call might be a different story. But, but you know, by that time, John was a detective and, and uh, you know, he probably arrested lots of folks. And John was pretty good at getting confessions. So, I, I mean, I don't think he beat anybody, <laughs> you know, but he had a good, he had a good, uh, uh, a good interview technique. And a lot of times, you know... Um, He'd get, he'd get people to kind of break down and tell the truth. So he probably had put a lot of people away. It could have been anybody. In October of 1982, John Munden, along with a Indiana State Police investigator, traveled to Georgia to follow up on leads related to David Alplanip. First, they spoke with his mother-in-law, who said David was lazy and she had kicked him out of her house because he wouldn't get a job. She said she couldn't understand why Cindy even stayed with him, because he hit her and he ran around with other women. It was her impression that David Alplanip was somehow involved with Laura Morris. They left her house with the name of a woman, Becky, who she said that David had apparently shacked up with. Those are her words. And they tracked down Miss Becky. She told them that David Alplanip had a drug arrest while he was in Atlanta, and he had since moved to Florida. She provided them with his address. She said that he was apparently working for his father, who owned a small painting company. Interestingly enough, where they were was about 40 miles from where Steve Snedeker was living at the time. Becky said that she had met David Planip when he sold her and her brother cocaine. Initially, she thought he was single, but she later learned that he was married and had kids. She said that they were only together about a week, but they were doing a lot of drugs, so she did not remember a whole lot. He told her that he had gotten into trouble in Indiana, and he would never go back. He also told her that he had taken lie detector tests in Indiana, and that he had, quote, passed them with flying colors. There was another detective with him from Georgia, who then questioned Becky related to a rape that had occurred around that time at the Sandalwood Apartments in Georgia where David Planip lived before he left town for Florida. When detectives spoke with the manager of those apartments, they learned that David Planip had worked for Adair Security starting in October of 1981, about two months after Laura went missing, but he was terminated shortly thereafter in February of 82. He was suspected of stealing televisions from the apartment complex where he worked as a security guard. Yes, I said, security guard one has to wonder about the lax vetting done that ended up with David L. Planet being hired as a security guard. He would later fail a polygraph for that company based on questions related to drugs. The apartment manager told the investigators that he was involved with a mother and her 15-year-old daughter in that same complex while he lived there. So, as Laura Morse's investigation slowly poured into its second year, police were keeping an eye on where David Alplanip lived in Florida. Amazingly, it is not until this late date that there was a formal request for phone records for the Snedeker home, the home of Brenda and Danny, Laura's sister and brother-in-law, David and Cindy Alplanip's apartment, Bryce Morris's parents' house where he was living at the time that Laura went missing, the home of Chuck Smith, the guy who had gone missing after Trudy talked John Munden out of his phone number, as well as the residence of Danny's brother Mike, 
who had dated Laura at some point. The notes indicate that Mike had failed a polygraph test. They also wanted phone records for Sandra, Bryce Morris's girlfriend, as well as the friend of a guy named Dave Corbin, who apparently was his alibi. Corbin was another name in that friend circle that came up during the investigation. They had also requested the phone records of a couple who Ricky Akers had been staying with at the time that Laura went missing. That list gives us a good idea of the people that John Munden were looking at at the time, as far as their whereabouts, when Laura went missing. Munden served that subpoena himself, but unfortunately it was well after some of those records would be available. During that time, John Munden was also trying to sit down with Stephen Trudy, but they seemed to be evading him. John and I had a meeting set up with Stephen Trudy for February 4, 1983, in Louisville, Kentucky. Steve was supposed to call back and verify and agree on a location. We tried to call him Thursday afternoon and he wasn't there. John called Thursday night and he still wasn't there. Steve called me at home on Friday and said that he'd run into freezing rain. Cars and trucks sliding off the road and jackknifing. He said he was about 200 miles away and he didn't know if he'd make it. He said he'd call back. He talked about making the meeting later that day or maybe Saturday. Steve didn't call back Friday, Saturday, or Sunday. Monday morning, Steve called me at home around 8 or 8.30. He said that he had talked to and visited with his sister Mary, and she advised him to get an attorney before talking to us. Said his sister was tired of us calling her and that she was going to go to court or something to get the phone calls stopped. I told Steve that everyone has a right to an attorney, but I didn't think he needed one for the meeting because if something was said that he didn't like, he could always stop the meeting. But as far as him getting an attorney, he can do whatever he wanted to do. I told Steve that I didn't feel that he had anything to do with his daughter's death. And he said his sister told him we were asking things about those two guys who went missing. He said, police aren't honest and sometimes things change and they get pressures and they have to do other things. Steve said that he's still looking at Bryce. I told him, I have a little trouble with the conspiracy thing, Steve. He thinks Bryce hired at Planip to kill Laura, and maybe even Akers was in on it. Steve said, maybe Bryce did it. Bryce and at Planip are good friends. He was Bryce's best man at the wedding. Steve said at Planip is down there in Florida by him, and he said he's hard to watch because he's into dope, and he thinks they're police. Steve said maybe they'll have to buy off him, so he doesn't think they're police. I told Steve, if he thinks they're police... He probably won't sell to him. After hearing from Steve, John Munden called Steve's sister Mary in reference to what he alleged that she had said. And it shouldn't surprise you that his sister said Steve was lying. According to her, they hadn't spoken or visited since the funeral. And the last time she talked to him on the phone was the day that Munden had last called her. Mary said there was no mention of Chuck Smith or Tony Lambert, the two missing guys. And she said that she never said a thing to Steve about getting an attorney or that she was upset with investigators. In fact, she assured him that if she was, she would tell him. She had no idea why Steve would say those things, but she thought if he was going to tell that story, you'd think he would call her first and let her know he was going to do it. They did learn a little bit more about Steve during that phone call. They learned that there were 10 children in the Snedeker family and that Steve had a twin who died at birth. Their father was in the used oil business, 
and so were some of his kids, including Mary, a sister in Colorado, and another in Flint, Michigan. When their mother died, the kids signed waivers and the estate went to their father. When their father died, they each got approximately $250,000 and they divided some property. Mary figured Steve's net worth at around $1 million at the time they spoke. She told police that her recollection was that in 1969 or 1970, Steve had been in trouble in Port Clinton, Sandusky, and in Chillicothe. The FBI, who was hunting him down for flight to avoid prosecution, came a-knocking around Ohio and chatted up people from Mary's mother's side, who she said didn't really associate with Steve to begin with. Around the time that he was on the run, Steve borrowed a car from his sister in Michigan, and the FBI put her in jail for two days and nights trying to smoke him out. But the sister never talked. Mary said that around 1975 or 1976, Steve was apprehended in Texas, where he had been living with his family under the assumed surname of Horton. One rumor she heard about his troubles involved the theft of a boat and motor, and others were about a bank robbery in Chillicothe. And then there was another one, something in there about Steve shooting at a police officer. Who is Otto Horton? That would be Steve Snedder's alias when he was running from the FBI. Is Ohio. this, would it be the Port Clinton, Ohio thing? Port Clinton, that's what it was. And that is what triggered Snedder to leave the state, to leave Ohio. And he ran west to Texas, where he became a uh, well digger. Digging oil wells. Oh, well digger. So he was working like as a laborer at that time. Yeah. Right. Right now. They he changed everybody everybody else in the name in the family kept their first name. He changed his first name and his last name. And in fact there's shot records from Houston of uh, Bud getting his vaccinations when he was little. <laughs> and his shot records are in a different name? Yeah, they're in uh, Steve Horton. <laughs> Another thing that, a story that Brenda told me about one day, he took the whole family into Sears and Roebuck down in uh, Houston, walked in, picked up a recliner, and walked out with his family in tow. Just walked in, grabbed it, and walked right the fuck out. <laughs> Jeez. So, you know? Yeah, who does that kind of shit? Yeah, these guys, I mean, the guy that he, the, these guys that were, you know, the one in the bar fight and the other one, these were, he did, he seems to have surrounded yeah. himself with some pretty, you know, n not yeah, real great I think, people. Yeah, I, uh, I think it's relative to the business his dad and brothers were in, which was the wasteful business. After Steve was apprehended, the FBI transferred him back to Chillicothe for trial, and this would become the Port Clinton affair that I described in an earlier episode where he and his two buddies jacked a bunch of lawn equipment. Mary was the one that had heard about Steve sending word to the mother of one of those guys in jail that if he testified against Steve, he better think about the safety of his family, which effectively ended that trial and got Steve Snedeker off on minor charges. Mary described Steve as someone with a terrible and fast temper. She said he beat up some guy at their dad's oil business, over differences regarding 100 gallons of oil. Another time, he beat some guy up over a remark 
that he made to Steve's son. Mary said that Steve had threatened to kill his own brother-in-law years earlier. Mary said it was known that Steve had done many shady oil deals and he made lots of money doing it. She said he was very possessive of everything, especially his family, and wanted to keep them all close. They all did what Steve told them to do, and that Trudy had to ask permission before she even went anywhere. She said Steve was closest to their sister in Michigan, and it was that sister and Mary who had gone to Greenfield right after Laura went missing. During that visit, Steve told his sisters that he had a tape of Laura being molested, and he thought she had been brutally murdered, although this is before her body had even been found. I'm not sure what that molested bit refers to, but it could be that phone call that police recorded at the Snedeker home right after Laura went missing. So she gets a call the day after with somebody, some male, saying, we're bound to get you, sucker, or we're going to get you, sucker. Then the police put a recording device on her phone, and they get a call that comes in from a woman this time. What is your recollection about that call? Well... What it sounded—I mean, I've heard the recording. Oh, good. Okay. Um, what it sound—what it sounds like, to be honest with you, and what I believe um, other people identified um, was that it was Laura's voice, and it sounded, to be honest with you, it sounded like um, uh, a woman in the passions of a sexual relationship. Really. Yeah. Huh. Um, it, 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 a lot of, uh, groaning and <laughs> that kind of a stuff, you know what I mean? Not, uh, it, it, and there was no, as far as I recall, there were no words spoken. Um, you know, I, I mean, nobody said, listen to this, you know, and uh, it was it just, they answered the phone and there was this recording. And well, we all believe it was recording because they had the they had the tape analyzed, and it sounded like right at the beginning of it, there uh, beginning of the call, there's a click uh, that sounds like somebody turning on a recorder. Okay, I saw a note about. Uh, I was wondering if there was a note about that they had sent some recording to um, a police department or um, somewhere in Michigan to to, to investigate a the, an audio tape. Yeah, that was that was probably that was probably it. So they thought it was a recording of her voice doing that sound. I'm sorry. So the police thought it was a yeah, it was yeah, actually a recording yeah. of yeah. Her. And, and there were other. I mean, I you know, I there were other folks, uh, and I don't know. I apologize. I can't tell you who they were, but other family or related people, you know, who said, "Well, yeah, that's that's Laura. You know, that's Laura's voice." But she wasn't and, uh, saying anything. She was just moaning, right? So it wasn't even yeah. words. How yeah. could they tell it was her if it was just? Well, I just I, I'm assuming they may. I don't. Maybe they even asked Bryce. Oh, oh, and, that's you true. know what I mean. Okay, um, that would make sense because it's it's possible that he may have had there may have been recordings of them. You know. Oh, is that um, was that a theory that Munden had or? Well, he... I mean, it was just nobody knew for sure. Okay, nobody knew for sure where it came from but the consensus was that it was in fact Laura's voice but like I say there weren't any there was no verbal communication in terms of language it was just these grunts and groans and huffs and puffs and and moans and like I say uh, uh, sounded like kind of the moment of ecstasy there for, right. for her 
And uh, what did what did Munden think of? What was his theory of who would have done this and why? Well, I I, I mean, I, the, the the question is, I think, was who could have? Right. You know, because who? Yeah, I mean, at first, until they sent it off, they weren't sure whether it was a live recording or not not a recording, but a live um, call. Yeah. Call. Yeah. Um, and so at, at initially, it's like, well, it, somebody's got her. She's still alive. Um, and but it certainly certainly didn't sound like somebody being assaulted against their will. Okay. You know what I mean? Yep, yep. Uh, so that's the reason. As they listened to it, they said, "Well, we've got to we've got to know what this is." And I, I'm sure that's why they sent the tape off. Yeah. Uh, or sent the recording, uh, Trudy's record, the recording from Trudy's phone, sent it off to, uh, you know, audio experts or whatever, who basically indicated, yeah, there was a, a strange click right at the beginning of it was to sound it to them pretty obviously like somebody turning on a recorder. So at that point, they believed it was pre-recorded sounds. Now that starts to say, well, okay, well, who could have those? Well, who knows? You know, I mean, um, Bryce could have them mm-hmm. by the same token. Yeah, any sexual partner could definitely have it. Absolutely. Right. So, absolutely. Okay. And then, um, but then you try to think of this and then think, was it just some random person because it, this was on the, you know, well, it wasn't even on the news, but for this only happened two days after. I mean, you have to think of who the people are involved and what the motive to play that would be. And it just seems yeah. so strange. It doesn't. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, I, the only the only thing that we could figure was that it was an attempt by someone to indicate that she was still, still alive. alive. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Um, and who knows where that tape could have come from or God only knows. I mean, I, I wouldn't put it past the Snedigers themselves somehow to have gotten the a whole, <laughs> you know, and you, mean, you, that's interesting because one of Mary Jones's, uh, that's Steve Snedeker's sisters, in one of the Indiana State Police interviews, had said that Steve told her that they had a tape of Laura being molested. <clears throat> yeah, and I assumed that's what they were talking about. Well, I'm assuming it was too. Yeah, but um, uh, as far as I know, that's the only tape with yeah. that kind of sound on it that that was involved. If they had other tapes. Um, I don't think we ever heard them. You know what I mean? Okay, let me um, let me ask you something about the Snedekers, just because you you know a little bit more about them. <clears throat> Is there any indication, let's that they would be wanting to deflect police away from Laura's um, people that she hangs around with, any drug use? Are they the type that are going to not be honest with police simply because they're worried about appearances? I think they were just. Um, any deflection that they were doing had nothing, I don't think, had anything to do with their reputation or Laura's reputation or anything like that. I think it was purely the closer the police got to them, uh, to the case, the closer they came to unraveling some of the dirty shit that they were involved in. Right. Yeah. You know, That's I what my was, wonder. I was wondering. Yeah. Like, yeah. I think it's self-protection. <clears throat> Mary's theory was that if Steve knew that Laura was taking drugs, he might hit her maybe even a little too hard, and if that happened, she believed that family would keep the incident to themselves. That's just how they were, she said. One of the things I was wondering at this stage of the game 
given that they lived so close together at this point, is why Steve had not already dispatched of David Alplanop in the same way that he did with Tony Lambert and Chuck Smith. If he thought David Alplanop killed his daughter, why not go try to shake him down like he had the others? We know how he handled Lambert. And while John Munden believed that Trudy handled Chuck Smith, I'm not sold on that. I think it's more likely that Steve enlisted Trudy's help, which makes her just as guilty, don't get me wrong. I mean, she knows Lambert was missing. His wife is calling her desperately, repeatedly, begging for information, which Trudy coldly ignored. She is certainly aware by now of what her husband is capable of. They'd lived on the lam for years. She knew who Steve Snedeker was. But I'm not convinced Trudy was the one who did Chuck in. I think she probably lured him in for Steve. Here's the private investigator that Steve Snedeker hired in the month or so after Laura went missing. I worked as an investigator for 38 years, a private investigator, so, and I'm just now retiring, so. Yeah, I was hired by her parents, and I remember, and again, we're going way back. I mean, this is, I, 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 I swear I thought they had the shooter on this one. I'm surprised that they did. Um, I, you know, I was hired, I, I don't remember what year it was now, it's way, way back. I had just gotten out of the military. I was with the military police and military intelligence, and I just I just left military and, and uh, became a private investigator here in Indiana. I don't recall how long it was that the parents called me and asked me to come out, so I went out there, interviewed with the parents, talked to them, and, and uh, they decided to hire me, and they retained me to work on the, on the case. So one of the first things I did was I had the neighborhood campus because of the cul-de-sac, back. And I was surprised to find out that no one, the Hancock County Sheriff's Department, had um, canvassed the neighborhood. They hadn't talked to anybody oh, around the house. Now that, that's my memory of it, okay? I could oh. be wrong, but I don't think so. I think that was one of the things. So, and I, and see, I don't have this file anymore either. I'm sure of that. It's a darn long. Oh man, I uh, wish you did, boy. I would love to see that. I, well, I, see, I would think that my report would be with sheriff's records or somewhere. I turned reports into the senators, and, but, but you know, I would have thought Munden would have kept the first book. He might have. Thing. He might have. I'm still trying to get Hancock County stuff. I got a lot of the Indiana State Police yeah. stuff and uh, with my Florida FOIA. So I, you know, got some stuff, but it's taking longer with Hancock County, and I'm wondering if there's a reason for that. But go ahead. So you yeah. <laughs> you were, you canvassed, you learned that they hadn't canvassed the place. So yeah, what... We, Go ahead. We canvassed, we canvassed the neighborhood, and um, I had a couple of young guys that I hired that were working with me, and, and they don't work with me anymore, and honestly, I couldn't remember their names now, but um, we canvassed the neighborhood, and I was shocked that, they, that the police at the sheriff's department had not canvassed the neighborhood prior to us, because it had been, I don't know, a month, maybe two, I don't know, and and I don't remember how the, how the senators came to hire me. I don't remember if they came through one of my attorneys or, you know, that I worked for or somebody like that. But anyway, they hired me. We came to the neighborhood. We came up with, I think it was a vehicle or something, maybe a white van. That's what's coming out of my head, but I don't know that 100% anymore. Mm-hmm. But there was a vehicle, something that came up and a canvassing. And after that, when that happened, when we did the canvas, then we came up with a little bit of information, London got very hostile towards us. Hmm. And he was not happy at all. And, you know, 
personally, I felt like he had watched one of many episodes of the Rockford Files. You know, the police <laughs> have to be assholes, part of my friend, no, to a press investigator. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I was just shocked. I mean, I'm sitting there thinking, Mister, you know, I work with law enforcement in different countries, and now I come here in my own state, and you're acting like a jackass? I mean, we're all here for the same reason, to find this girl. You know, and I didn't care about headlines or something. I just wanted to do a good job for my clients. You right. know, and simple as that for me. And London, it, it got to the point. I remember at one point. I remember, um, and I don't want to focus on bitch about Munson, but it got to the point where um, at one point I remember Applegate, I think it was, came walking up to me, and we were in the cul-de-sac. And I don't remember if one of them came out there at some point. We were talking. Or something. I remember that Applegate came up and he kind of he squares off with me and he says, hey, you can, it's something like, this is not verbatim, okay, this has been years and years ago, but mm-hmm. it was something along the lines of, hey, you keep messing around this case and John's going to have you arrested. You know, something like that. Uh. And I'm sitting there, it was a threat. You know, it's a flat out threat. I mean, it was a straight up threat. There's no question of a threat. It was a straight up threat. You know, John's going to have you arrested. You keep messing around this case, John's going to have you arrested. So John was getting pissed off and you know I'm sitting there going hey you know we all have to do the same thing I don't care about you know headline or this that or the other thing you know this girl you know we're just trying to find this girl you know that's all there's to it anyway that happened and we continued our investigation and 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 I don't remember if it's or Applegate one of them said to me you know well you have to turn over anything you find us you know you have to turn over anything you find us well according to Indiana law you know, if I'm investigating a criminal matter like that, I do have to turn over my information to a law enforcement agency, but it doesn't say what agency. And as I recall, I contacted, and I wish I could think of uh, the state police officer's name. I'm pretty sure, I'm thinking of Wheeler, but I don't know for sure. But I called him, that state police officer, because I kind of knew him. I had talked to him when I was still in Europe about getting my license things, that kind of thing. Uh-huh. So I called him up and I said, look, you know, this is what's happening out there. You know, we're trying to do this investigation. These guys are getting in the way and they're threatening us, threatening me. I don't appreciate it. The law says I have to give information to law enforcement. Therefore, anything I find, I'm just going to give it to you to help these guys, you know. And, okay. And, yeah, you know, I'm just going to go around them. You know, I didn't care. Huh. So, and he agreed. You know, he agreed. So we were cool with that. So we kept doing our investigation. We interviewed, gosh, I don't know how many people, friends of the Senegers, you know, the Senegers themselves, obviously. There was, uh, and I hate to say this because you were up for her daughter, and I can't remember the names of the people I spoke to, honestly, but there was an indication that Laura had been using drugs or involved with some drugs. Yeah, we got all that. You can speak freely because she knows all this, I think. She knows she was not hanging around with a good group of people, for sure. Yeah, she wasn't. And that she owed money. She owed money to a drug dealer. And the thought was that... And why did the name Jack Frost come into my head? I have a Bobby Frost. Who is it? Bobby Frost. Robert. Bobby Frost. Uh Uh-huh. Do you have a middle name or something, or...? No, uh, I, I don't, it's Robert Frost, but his name was Bobby, and the, they, they were questioning him. There were a couple people, he was one of that group that they were questioning. He sh- was he the one that she owed money to? Well, I don't know. I'm, I'm uh-huh. saying that, that that's a name that keeps popping in my head. Okay. You know, 
we kind of came to the, to the to the conclusion that you know she owed some money for some drugs, and you know the guy uh, decided he was going to get his money back, and and you know he he basically took her. You know that was our thought. I mean, it's not something we could prove in court or whatever. But the but the drug dealer, the guy she owed money to, uh, I believe, if I remember this correctly, he, he snatched her up from the house took her out and was basically threatening her over this money. And then I think, and again, you're asking me something that's so long ago and I'm really sorry I can't help you. No, it's okay. You're doing great. Yeah, I don't feel like I'm doing great. No, but but uh, you're filling in some gaps, so that's okay. I I mean, I think she got, I think, I believe she got panicked. She made a run for it and she went to leap over a fence, like a, a field fence or something like that. And then this idiot fired a shot, and I believe it was a small. I don't. I have never seen the autopsy report on her, mm-hmm. but my memory, my memory believes that it was a very small caliber weapon, mm-hmm. at like a twenty-five or something yep, like that. It was Maybe twenty-five. Two. Was it a twenty-five? Yeah, but she was shot three times in the head. Oh, okay. Well, okay. So the th- the thought was that she leaped over this fence, he fired the, the round, struck her. And she went down, and then he panicked. Something like that. That's, you know, that's the, that's what's in my head. I don't know. If and so she di- She was killed basically in that cornfield. Yes. Yes. How yeah, did? Not at her parents' house. There was no scene there. No. Was there one guy or, or just one person there that at this moment, or was there more than one person with her? I would personally, I would think it took at least two people to take her out of the house because she went out of the house, you know, there was no struggle or anything right. like that at the house. Yeah. Not that I recall. Uh-huh. There was no struggle at the house, and I don't remember where the baby was when all this happened. Not there. Like, he, with, she was there. with her father at the time, so she wasn't uh, at the okay. house. But yeah, where okay. did you, this This is a pretty detailed story about her jumping over the fence and all that. Who do you, do you remember any more about, like, how that story came about and who, you know, through who? Were you, not name-wise, but, like, how that story I, developed? Gosh, where did that story come from? Because we, we interviewed so many people. We interviewed everybody she knew. We interviewed, you know, the friends of her parents. We interviewed her parents. You know, I'm sure, you know, we just interviewed everybody. I'm surprised that the girl's father, we probably interviewed him too, I would think. I yeah, he, he doesn't have, she doesn't have a good relationship with, with her father. He, de- you know, he, he's yeah. not been, and I, I think this friend group, these people that you're talking about may have been part of that group. I mean, I don't. I, I yeah. basically um, did you hear anything about the drugs what type of drugs they were I don't think it was marijuana I, I you know I don't think it was pot I, I think it was something other than pot you know but I'm just speculating she had a bag yeah, of she had a bag of pills in her purse when it was found but that was yeah. found inside the house so she was known to have yeah. done like caffeine pills or, or or speed or stuff but I'm just trying to figure out which friend group and where this story would actually come from because this is the first time I'm actually hearing this story and there's like lots of stories going that went around about her but it's all you know Munden's theory like I said that he came to after years and years was that Trudy killed her in an argument that night um, and then somehow her called her father to come get rid of her body it was an accident over her her getting back with her her Laura getting back with her husband or something they were estranged uh, they were get, they yeah. got divorced and so it's a totally different it, it always that part of the story seemed weird and then Steve sort of went right. off his nut and started uh, shaking people down and 
they went missing. Right. That part of the story makes right. sense to me because that sort of, you know, okay, I can, not that it's good, but I can see that happening. The Trudy part right. just doesn't fit to me. There's stuff that doesn't fit. I mean, so the autopsy report basically says they only have three shots in the head, but by the time they found her, all the soft tissue was pretty much gone. Um, right. So if there were any, you know, like a bullet in a soft tissue area, let's say, um, but the, I'd still expect that bullet if she got shot while she's running to be somewhere and they didn't find it unless, I don't know, maybe it went all the way through. I don't know. Uh, the point is that they only found the three shots to the head and the skull. They have no soft tissue or b- other bones that they x-rayed all the other bones. There were no other injuries shown. She did have, she did have her shirt had a, a V-shaped hole in it. There were holes in the front and the back, but there's no mention of blood on the shirt or anything. So it's it's very sort of confusing, you know. So your story is that she was trying to get away from this person at some point, which must be right near where that where she was found. If she's jumping fences out there in the boonies in Shelby County. And I I don't remember the crime scene itself where the body was found. I don't remember that. I don't remember. you know, if there was actually a fence there or not. Yeah, there no, was. There was a fence. She was found oh, on, in okay. a Shelby cornfield, I, lay, I think 30-some-odd feet from the fence line. Someone had to, they thought, have carried her in there. She was laying, like, um, with her arms crossed over her chest, her legs uh-huh. spread a little bit. And um, so it, it it wasn't where someone could have just driven her into there. Like, she, right. you know what I mean? And they thought someone yeah. carried her in there. Yeah. Could yeah. have been if she was, if, if, that she tried to jump the fence and was shot or injured right there at the fence line. They had to get her further in so no, she wouldn't be seen, well, you know. See, my thing was with the with the shooting, and like I said, you're, you know, I don't recall the three rounds to the head, but that wouldn't necessarily surprise me, but with these idiots, but because um, none of the people, I don't, none of the, in my career, you know, you don't have a lot of mastermind criminals. Things happen on spur of the moment. Yes. These idiots spend a million, you know, they spend thousands of hours trying to, cover up their stupid mistakes you right know? yeah um, but see and a 25 caliber is such a small round you know so and i can see someone you know accidentally shooting or you know shooting to scare and then they strike her and then it's a death shot just a, unfortunately mm-hmm. uh, i don't know why they do two more unless they wanted to make sure she was dead once we come back to, to give them up mm-hmm. but um you know and so they if they shot her in the head three times they recovered three spent, but so they covered three. They recovered three rounds, didn't they? Yeah, they got the. Um, there was yes, I believe they got three. Yes, three bullets to the head. They found you know some of them. One was still in there, but the other two exited. So they did find oh. find you know relative to those injuries, but there's no other one relative to any other injuries in her body. No other areas. But again, we have no soft tissue to examine. If a bullet right. did pass through somewhere and didn't hit any bone. Right. We just don't have that. And and even Munden theorized that there was some other injury besides those three shots. He did at first they thought that she was killed in that field of those three shots and then they decided that there had to be some other, you know, I guess to probably make his theory fit. I don't know, because it's just not fitting all together right yeah. now. Were they were they able to do ballistics on the round? Was it intact enough? That part I don't have any information from yet. Um, the, okay. See, the Indiana State Police, some of those records are hard to get. I'm going to ask him about that on, because I said, like I said, I do have a meeting scheduled on Thursday. We're going to do a Zoom meeting, Brandy, and which is Laura's daughter, and the uh, detective and I, because it seems to me like the, all of their top suspects, I was told that the top suspects were Trudy, 
Bryce Morris, which is Laura's husband, and then these two guys, David Abplanip and Ricky Akers, were two that sound like who you're describing. One of them was a guy that went on the run and was shot by police pretty shortly after Laura's, you know, around that same time. And the other one was a, and they were both, and the other one was a, a guy that supplied her drugs. And his name was Dave the Planet. So you may be describing those two guys. It sounds. Well, where does Frost come into that? He was, Frost was someone they interviewed who he right. says, he told police that. He and Dave Alplanip went to Laura's house of days, I guess, before she went missing to case the joint because David Alplanip wanted to rob it. and But David had said he wanted to rob it when Laura was there. And Frost said, I didn't want to do that. That sounded crazy to me. I didn't want to, you know, that I didn't, I had a job. I didn't want to do all that. I didn't want to. Yeah, and I think, so. I think, yeah, that may, okay. I think we interviewed, I think I interviewed Frost at some point. I think he you know, came up with that kind of a lame story, and then we kept pressing him and pressing him, and his story didn't make any sense. And, yeah, I, I you know, I mean, I, I think we were looking at some of his buddies, and, you know, and, and of course, we were passing information on as we went. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so uh, how long did you, how long were you working on this before, and how what was the resolution like? How far could you take it? Well, we got, we eventually, we hit a dead end. We, could, we didn't have the body. And, you know, we were, we had followed all the leads that were available, I mean, you know, and so I met with Gertrude and, and, and uh, Stephen, and Stephen, I, you know, I told him, I said, this is where we're at, you know, we can, and I, I think we even did some surveillance on some of the people we thought were involved. And, yeah, uh, I believe there was surveillance, and that's the other thing that's funny about the story you said about Munden, because days after, apparently, Laura went missing, um, Snedeker took like $10,000 cash in a bag up to John Munden and gave it to him on his desk and, and told ordered him to start surveilling people. So why is Munden getting upset for you for doing the same thing when he just accepted money from... from um, I, had, I had no idea that he handed him cash. $10,000 in a grocery bag. <laughs> Uh, well, and London's not about to take that when he's a sheriff's deputy. I know, I'm but he to... did. He took it. Well, it, you know, if if we were face to face, I knew you a little bit better. I'd tell you some more things about London <laughs> that came up after the fact. I'll tell you, I I'm, I was just, you know, it was one of those things. It was I kept wondering in my head, why is this guy giving me such a hard time? You know, why, why is he trying to be such an ass about this? We're just trying to find this girl. You know, she's got a baby, she's got parents, we're just trying to find this girl. Do you know know? if, let me ask you this, do you have any idea if Steve Snedeker knew John Munden before this all occurred? I don't think so. I don't know that for a fact, but I don't think so. But but I can tell you right now, and I've got this memory fairly clear, Gertrude and Steve Snedeker were not happy with Munden and the Sheriff's Department. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were flat out not happy. They didn't feel like they were getting any decent service. You know, if they if they were, they probably never would have come to find me. You know, mm-hmm. but they they were really disappointed in what was happening. They didn't feel like anybody was doing anything. I'm shocked that you're telling me that he paid money to Munden to do surveillance, have surveillance done because yeah. they didn't feel like anything was happening. I mean, I don't know when they paid that money. But that was I know very that. soon after she went missing, like in the week well, or so. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure that I didn't come into it until probably six weeks or maybe maybe even a little longer than that, maybe a couple months 
because the trail was getting cold. You know, when they call, when they called me, the trail was getting cold. Yeah. And uh, and like I said, I was surprised. You know, the first the, I, I remember specifically the first hit, the first thing that that seemed to you know get it sideways with London was me having that canvas done around the neighbors. Mm. You know, and and coming up with a vehicle. And I don't remember the vehicle. I'm thinking a white van, but I don't know. You know, I I, I can tell you after the fact. I don't know why I keep that that name Paul Wheeler doesn't sound right to me, but that I, I, Wheeler I know is the last name of the big police officer. But I, I I'll tell you something funny that happened, and it was funny to me at the time, you know, because Munden acted so badly throughout that whole thing, he acted so poorly. And at one point, and this was after this was like a couple of years later, and and again I thought this case was resolved, I, I really did. But anyway. A couple of years after the fact, I get a call, and I, I swear I thought it was John Wheeler, but anyway, I get a call from Wheeler at State Police, and he goes, hey, would you mind if I come over and talk to you some more about Orland Morris? And I said, no, I'm okay with that, you know, and uh, I was in Richmond, Indiana at the time, and um, he says to me, he says, would you mind if I come over and talk to you? I said, no, that's fine. And then he says, uh, well, listen, you know, we're working on the Orland Morris case. I said, okay, and, you know, happy late, pick my brain, and then he goes, well... I, I I have to bring John with me, and I said, "Who?" I said, "John, John London." <laughs> yeah, I said, "Okay." I said, "That's fine. I don't care." You know, I, I I didn't have a problem. London had a problem. So they showed up at my house. I remember answering the door, and I opened the door, and I'm standing there, and London's standing there with uh, a Wheeler. It's like, "Hey, Ken, how you doing? Hey, oh, I'm doing fine, doing fine." We shake hands, and then London looks at me and he goes, "Nice." You know, nice butt. And I had put on a button that said, fuck you if you can't take a joke. <laughs> <laughs> so I was tweaking Monday and, and he knew it, you know. Oh, my uh, anyway, God. So they, they talked to me again. You know, we interviewed, and I think we went over some notes and things like that, you know, again. And, you know, then they left, and that's the last I heard about it, you know, really. So uh, you're you the know. last, yeah. So that was that meeting was the last you had heard about the case. Were so you? That up? was my last involvement. Yeah, was when they came and talked to me again because they were. And my impression at the time was they were trying to firm up the, that they had a case made. and They were trying to firm it up. Well, let me ask you this. So when you presented it to Stephen Trudy, you presented it to them as we think this guy or guys. There it was a drug yeah. deal. She owed them some money. They they did you yeah. think she, that Laura went willingly with them initially? No. No, I don't think she went willingly. I'm pretty sure she didn't go willingly, actually. And again, that comes back from somewhere in my memory, I, you know, from the interviews we did with her friends and the people around her thing. Because like I said, we, we talked to everybody. If there was, you know, I had a list of people, because I handle all these cases the same way. And I mean, anybody that could have possibly contributed anything, and you know how it is when you're doing an investigation, you talk to, say, Bob over here, and then Bob says, well, go talk you know, to this I one. This, yeah. That, uh, yeah. yeah, go talk to Stephen Barry, and then you go talk to Stephen Barry, and they send you over to Sheila and Rose. Yep, yep. And you just follow that chain, you know, and that's how I was trained to do it. That's what I was doing. I was just following the links, following the links, following the links, and I felt like we were getting closer and closer and closer, and I... And, I, and when you talked uh, to Munden and the ISP investigator, Weiler, or whoever you think it was, Wheeler, um, did Wheeler. was the whole discussion about it around this this what we're talking about and the same transaction or were they asking you other things 
you know, the specifics of that conversation, I just don't remember. It was about the case, and I mean, I think it was about everything in the case, you okay. know, I think it was about, because I remember, I, I know that when we were talking, I know I was asking, I know I was asking the state police officer questions, and he was asked, he was answering, you know, uh, Munden, and Munden was very polite that day, you know, it was change for him, mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, you know, but the state police officer did most of the talk, and, and um, you know, I was, I, I asked questions, different questions about things, how it was progressing and whatever, and, you know, he answered them, but I couldn't tell what the answers were, I mean, it's just been so long. Mm-hmm. Were you aware at the time, like, so, so, like, the month after, you know, Laura went missing, um, one of Steve's business associates went missing, were you aware of that at the time? I, I do remember that happening, I remember that happening, and then I remember when, when uh, Gertrude, uh, came up missing down there in Florida too. I remember that the speculation that you know Steve had done something with her, you know mm. that he had murdered her down there and things. Yeah. But yeah, I, I, re- I remember that. Yeah, because it was strange. It was all, it was all strange stuff. Anyway. And you you think that that Steve and you so you presented this story what you believed had you had uncovered and what were their um, you know reactions to it? Well, they didn't want to believe. They got, if I recall, and again I'm just trying to remember so long ago, but. I believe that they were really mad at me at first. Oh, because I knew it. Want, I knew it. Huh? I knew it. I knew you were going to say that. I had this feeling yeah, from the really beginning they were defensive. They didn't want to believe that Laura was doing drugs, and because she had the baby, they, they just wouldn't accept, they didn't want to accept that. And we had, I think we had some really good evidence that she was doing drugs, oh. she had been doing drugs, and maybe even some low-level dealing. Yes. You know? All and of that is in the report. You are correct in all of that. My God, I'm so smart. You're very smart. <laughs> you have no oh, idea how excited. Now, come on. <laughs> I mean, you the... have to do that. I already called you back. It's just, it's so. I even asked. I even asked Dave Scott, who was friendly with Munden, if he thought that the Snedegers in any way could have been sort of very defensive about anything that might have involved Laura and oh no they would I don't think that any you know and I kept thinking I don't know I just get this sense that they would not have liked that they would not have want that getting out and they just you know so they they were originally upset with you they were mad at you for bring you know yeah yeah they were really they were not happy about that they were just you know it's like there's no way that can't be it you know this that and I was like look you know I'm just I'm telling you what the facts are, you know. I mean, that's, that's the facts. You know, I'm not I'm not going to color it for you because that doesn't do anybody any good. Right, exactly. Yeah, the Medicare's were pissed off. That's right. They were mad when I told them about the drug involvement and stuff. And they, they just couldn't believe that. You know, they, they didn't want to believe that. But I think they came to understand it later, you know, that it was correct. Yeah. So that your relationship at the end was okay? I mean, at the end of the your work yeah, today? Yeah, it was. Because I, I, I remember... You know, Gertrude, she was just a very, you know, I, I had a lot of sympathy because of the baby and, you know, they, they were, you know, they were distraught over the daughter missing. Yeah. And, you know, I had a lot of empathy for them and I felt awfully bad for them. And, you know, and I, Gertrude, like I said, there was initially, it was denial, you know, no, our daughter wouldn't do that, blah, 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 you know. And then eventually it was like, you know, well, okay, you know, you know, we'll we'll accept that a little bit, but they didn't like it. You know, I'm sure, but you know, mm. the facts are what are. You know, 
I just instinctively felt that was the case for some reason. There are a couple things you've confirmed to me that, well, confirmed as far as that's what I felt. And so I am, I'm really glad I talked to you. And now, I, I mean, it was just unbelievable that I did this today, called you today out of the many people that I could have had on my list that I had. I hadn't, I didn't know even you were an investigator. I had no idea who you were. You were a name on a piece of paper that said met with. And I thought, let's give it a shot. I've already called four people today and nobody answered. Let me try one more before I quit today. And and now I have something to literally to, to go on when I have this in this in, uh, meeting. And I'm, and I'm sure Brandy's going to be happy about getting some new information. I'm telling you, she, she knows. I mean, this has been very emotional for her. She had a shitty family, a shitty... But the one thing she kind of wanted to find out was that her grandmother didn't kill her mother. You know, she kind of wants that. And I said, I can't, I, <laughs> I can't I promise you that. that. I can't, I can only yeah. look into it for you, you know? So no, I, don't, I don't believe that for a second. There's, you know, that's, you know, that was what Monday kind of pushed and stuff. I don't believe that for a second. Do you remember him pushing it that early when you were into it? Was it something on the table well, back then? Well, Monday had a, you know, see, Monday, I don't, and again, I'm going just from my memory, but I don't think Munden liked uh, the Snedekers either. I don't know if he was jealous because they were successful and, or maybe he knew that Steve, you know, had maybe a little sketchy past or something. I don't know, but he, in my opinion, and I know, but I know that the Snedekers, I know, complained to Malcolm Grass about, you know, Munden and Applegate and them not doing enough on this case. You know, I know they did that. I, I spoke to Malcolm Grass myself before he was before he died, and um, I think he was killed by the Casper brothers. I think if I remember right. But uh, anyway, um, you know, I, and and I and I know that the Snedekers and and just they weren't they weren't happy with the with the service they were getting from the Hancock County Sheriff's Department. What did Malcolm and, say? What was his response when you told him? Or they told well, him? Well, you know, he, he's, he's a sheriff. He's going he's gonna, to, you know, oh, we're doing the best we can and we got to do this and that. And blah, 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 blah. You know, yeah. that kind of thing. The party line. Yeah, but yeah. they, yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, he was, he was covered. But me personally, you know, I'm like, hey, you know, if they're not doing their job, make them do their job, you know. Right, exactly. Somebody's doing special, they just want to do their job. Hmm. But, uh, yeah, they were. They were not. I know that there was some. I, I know there was some animosity between the Hancock County Sheriff's Department at the time and the Snedekers. Did you ever talk to Laura's uh, husband, by the way, or ex-husband Bryce Morris? I, I'm sure we did. Yeah. I'm sure we did. I can't. I can't imagine. I, I don't remember that like right off the bat. But like I said, we talked to everybody, and whether he remembers it or not, I don't know. But we talked to everybody. Yeah. And I. I do recall, I believe, that, that the Snedegers thought he might be a suspect. Yes, they did. And, yeah. You know, and it seems like we ruled him out pretty quick. We were able to kind of rule him out. And then, like I said, then the drug thing popped up from somewhere. And, you know, then it kind of started leading that way. And, you know, that's where it went. Do you know how much money she was in, uh, she owed a drug dealer? Like it was an exorbitant amount or... What are you thinking? I don't know, honestly. I, yeah. I couldn't tell you. And, and see, it may have been the, it may have been that bag of pills she was running around with too. I don't know how many were in there, but it may have been he get he fronted her some product. She didn't pay for it. Didn't give it back. And yeah, that could be it because it was. I mean, a bag of pills is doesn't sound like a you know a little bottle. It sounds a yeah. bag, you know. Huh. Yeah. And I, uh, but I can tell you something for a fact, and this is a fact. One thing is that, and I got this from the people we talked to at the time. Laura Lynn Morris loved her daughter question about that 
and Gertrude Snedeker loved her daughter, Lorlin Morris, and her granddaughter, and so did Steve. I, I know that for a fact, there's no question. Because I know that baby played a big part in what they were asking us to do as far as finding this, you know, finding out what happened to their daughter, things like that. It's like there's no way our daughter would have left this baby. You know, we love our granddaughter, you know, that kind of thing. They, they were crazy about their granddaughter. Well, I can tell you that that will mean a lot to her because she doesn't have a whole. She doesn't even have memories of her mom very much. She doesn't have a whole lot to to hold on to, and it's been an emotional time for her. But she wanted to do this, and so yeah. um, that's yeah. gonna. She's gonna appreciate that. So thank you yeah. for saying that. I appreciate. The story that the private investigator recalls does seem to line up with the idea that someone in that friend group related to drugs could have killed Laura Morris. So why didn't Steve go after El Planet? He'd already gone after two other guys. Why not David El Planet? He's telling the cops he's thinking about doing a drug buy just to get close to him. Obviously, Steve can't go after Bryce Morris, Laura's ex. That would be a huge tell. But we know he's still considering him because he told cops that he thought maybe he hired someone to kill Laura. Likewise, it seems to me that trying to go after Dave Ebb Planet and his drug-selling buddies, after his own private investigator told Steve that he thinks someone in that circle may have killed her, might be a little too on the nose, even for Steve Snedeker. The private investigator told him he was turning over all of his information to the state police. I think by that time, Steve knew that he was being closely watched. It's clear by that previous interaction, when he lied about what his sister Mary said, Steve was fishing for information. He wanted to know what the cops knew and whether they were looking at him for those missing men. I think even Steve knew that he could not afford to keep offing people that he considered suspects. It was just too obvious. In the end, Steve just couldn't get close enough to Dave Ebb Planet without it circling right back onto him. And that very fact may have saved David Ebb Planet's life. Unfortunately, David Planoff died of an overdose in 1992. So any answers that he may have had went to the exact same place that the answers that Ricky Akers may have had. It's around this point in our timeline, by the end of 83 or beginning of 1984, that leads in the Laura Morris case slowed to a simmer. The Snedegers were all in Florida now, setting up their new lives and their new oil business. At the end of 1984, John Munden would marry a woman named Nieves Lindner, and I will tell you how their lives intersected in the next episode. Stay tuned.